Coming up on the Money Bee Podcast, we talk to a top value investor about what else? Value investing and how you can pick stocks in this market. This is Money Bee from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Steve Grosser, Paul Vigna, our normal host. Had the audacity to take a couple of days off, so you're stuck with me hosting. I'm joined here in the studio with Chris Dietrich and heard on the streets, Spencer Jacob. And we also have a special guest. We have John Buckingham, Chief Investment Officer of Al Frank Asset Manager and the publisher of The Prudent Spe- uh, Speculator. Um, John, I just wanted to like, quickly mention the fact that... Uh, the market low is not the only uh, thing celebrating an anniversary this week. Your newsletter is um, hitting 40. Yeah, it's amazing. In March of 1977, Al Frank uh, sat out to... write down all of the things that he was experiencing as a normal everyday investor and have a diary, if you will, of his experiences. And he was a value investor and embraced that both philosophically in terms of searching for undervalued things in life, but then applying that to the stock market. And, uh, you know, happily 40 years later, our newsletter has done very well. And um, believe it or not, I'm I'm actually celebrating my 30th anniversary as well uh, with with working for Al Frank Asset Management. Um, as a value investor, we have valuations right now. They are, you know, stretched or high, depending on uh, the terminology you want to use. Um, how does that affect you as a value investor? Well, it's interesting today because certainly on a PE ratio, if that's all you looked at and you were focusing solely on one metric, I can't tell you that stocks in general are inexpensive because we're at the high end of the range. But we also have to keep in mind where we are in the interest rate environment. And I've had this argument with folks for quite some time now um, that you just can't look at P.E. ratios. So, for example, if you go back and say in the year 2000 or 2007 and thought about yields on other investments aside from stocks. So yields on a money market fund, for example, in 2007, you were getting 5 percent, 500 basis points. In 2000, you were getting 600 basis points, 6 percent. Contrast that today. And of course, now we've come up from getting zero on your money market fund to getting 50 basis points. So all of that has to get rolled into the equation. So while valuations are certainly on the upper end of the historical norm, they certainly can be based on where we are interest rate-wise. That's number one as a backdrop. But number two, as an active manager, an individual stock picker, we're able to go where we see greater value than in the overall market. So the dividend yields on our portfolios are higher. We're at about 2.5% to 3%, depending on the portfolio, versus a 2% for the S&P 500. And from a P ratio perspective, we're about three points below the ratio on the market. And same thing with price to book value, price to sales. So we really think that we're in the right spot uh, and right area of the market, especially given where we are in terms of the interest rate climate, meaning that we're likely to see rates rise. And believe it or not, rising interest rates historically, no guarantees, of course, but historically have been favorable for value-oriented strategies, much more so than growth-oriented strategies. Value is done dramatically better in a quote-unquote rising rate environment. Is, is, I mean, that's a, that gets to the next point. I mean, that's been a question I think that's over, you know, you've seen over and over for years now with interest rates so low that it has been hard on stock pickers. Are we now moving finally into an environment that could be beneficial to stock pickers? 
Well, I absolutely think so. I mean, last year was an example of that. Value-oriented strategies uh, outperformed. Um, Generally speaking, active managers did a whole lot better, especially um, in the second half of last year. So I do think going forward that, and I know that money continues to be shoveled into passive strategies, but boy, I'd rather, you know, be investing in the inexpensive stuff in a market that by some measures, of course, is expensive. And the other piece of the puzzle you have to consider is that in the popular market averages, you're dominated by, you know, some giant capitalization companies. So if you don't want to own Amazon and Alphabet and Apple and Microsoft, um, if you don't want to own those stocks in large quantities relative to the rest of the market, then you, it's very tough to be investing in the indexes. And while some of those stocks we do like, some of them we don't. <laughs> and that's, that's the whole idea is you want to pick and choose uh, from amongst the, the uh, companies that are out there that are inexpensive, especially when I think that, that the market climate, if you will, is going to be a little more volatile and a little more difficult for investors going forward. I mean, what I... I um always impressed me about you. I think the first time we met was about 10 years ago, and uh, you were talking about uh, investing in uh, certain tech stocks. I think Apple, you were talking it up then. It's done okay in the last 10 years. (laughs) But, you know, you you speak to a lot of uh, dyed-in-the-wool value managers, and especially then, maybe not so much now, um, you know, tech stocks or anything flashy or anything like that was almost anathema to them. And uh, you're you know, you, you don't really seem to be handcuffed by what sort of business it's in or what the, the perception is. I mean, is that is that a, a you know a, a needed ingredient for success to sort of you know just don't worry about those things. Look at the uh, look at the numbers, analyze the business, and and go. Obviously, you, you're not going to get them all right, but that that one you got very right. Right, right. Well. We've always been a little different. You know, we're, we're in Southern California, about as far from Wall Street as, as you can imagine. You know, we're value investors, and we didn't get the memo that you can't invest in tech mm-hmm. if you're a value investor. So back in the, the tech bubble, if you will, um, there were numerous companies in those days that were trading below the cash on their books. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some of them were that they should have been trading there because their businesses weren't viable. But others, like Apple, um, their businesses, in our opinion, were very viable. And so we were able to apply value criteria. In this case, you know, price-to-book value uh, ratio would be the number one thing, plus a price-to-sales ratio as well. So you were able to make a case that many tech stocks were inexpensively priced, including Apple. Now you flash forward to today, and the interesting thing is that tech, in many instances, especially large-cap, boring tech, right, like Microsoft and Cisco and Intel and Oracle, you know, and even Apple, you know, these are become almost like the utility stocks of the day when you think about P.E. ratios and yields. Mm-hmm. You know, heck, I can get a 3% yield on Cisco. You know, do I really want to invest in, you know, a, a, a boring old utility stock that might not grow at all or grow at a, a smidge every year and maybe has a 4% yield? Or I want to invest in a, in a very innovative company that, that, in my opinion, is likely to grow faster than the overall economic growth rate and uh, be able to do so with a great dividend yield. And, again, tech companies have those fantastic balance sheets still with all of that cash, you know, many of much of which is you know, housed overseas. So there is a potential catalyst, if you will, if we have a repatriation of, of you know, overseas cash. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of interested broadly in um, how you're looking at sentiment right now in the, in the overall market, right? I mean, it's been sort of this psychological... Um, <coughs> 
roller coaster ride since the election. I mean, right? There's a sort of euphoria, and then it's and it's sort of paused. And I think this latest leg higher has sort of caught everybody off guard. But I mean, what do you what do you sort of watch in terms of those kind of signals, and sort of where where are we in terms of in terms of frothiness as you see it? <laughs> well, it's interesting. The things I read um, and see on television about you know investor enthusiasm and sentiment, and and there there seems to be this perception that there's this euphoria out there that investors are shoveling money, especially the Main Street investors are shoveling money into stocks. And as we saw um, here in uh, the American Association of Individual Investors puts out a weekly sentiment survey. Um, This week's survey saw a gigantic jump, at least for that uh, survey, in the number of bears. So now we're like something 30% are bullish and 40-some-odd percent are bearish. Um, It's hard to look at a gauge like that and say that investors are overly optimistic. Further, you know, we're on the front lines, of course, uh, we manage money for individuals, and we hear from our clients, and our clients, even if they, you know, are excited about their gains that they've seen, they're still very nervous about the economy, very nervous about the market, and certainly very nervous about the political climate, no matter which side of the aisle they may be on. So I just don't see it, feel it. Um, I don't see the this this euphoria that seems to exist out there. And further, I still continue to see, in terms of mutual fund flows, substantial dollars going into bond funds, which I find uh, perplexing given, given that interest rates are likely to rise. So there's still a safe haven calling for so many investors, and there's so much money that has gone out of stocks over the last couple of years and gone into bonds. Now, I know that near-term mutual fund flows have, have seen a reversal of that. But you still have, you know, on the order of magnitude of $100 billion or so more money that's gone into – out of stocks and has gone into bonds over the last two years. So I don't see this, this kind of euphoria or enthusiasm that investors uh, um, are often told about. But I just don't see it happening with our clients or really from the sentiment gauges I look at. One, well, I was just going to say, like – Obviously, the bull market turns eight this year, and one of the questions, and this sort of builds off of Chris's sentiment questions, is whether we are in the like the you know the final throes of a, an aging bull market, or if this rally has you know a lot more left in it. it. Do you? I mean, given the sentiment and given that the euphoria doesn't seem to be there, is that a is that a sort of bullish case for this um, the bull market? Well, absolutely. You know, one of the things you watch for is that frothiness, that irrational exuberance that, you know, we had the snap IPO, you know, everybody seemed to get excited about that. But happily, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, those folks who got enthused, you know, ended up getting, you know, losing some dollars. So we don't have it rocketing higher and higher and higher. Um, But your point that you mentioned, and, and of course, I'll challenge it. I know that we were talking about the eight-year anniversary of the bull market, and Spencer and I have had a good debate about this mm-hmm. over the years. Um, believe it or not, if, if you actually looked at the stock market on an intraday basis, and a lot of people's memories get very short, but in, 20, <laughs> in 2011, the S&P 500 peak to trough was down 21.6% intraday. Now, I know that we only measure things on closing basis for the official record, um, right? And so we were only down 19.6%. So technically, we didn't have a bear market that year. But the average stock was down far more than 20%. My portfolio was down more than 20%. And the fear levels were sky high in those days. And you can even go to 2014 to 2016 in various facets of the market. You had the same sort of thing, where you 
you had um, uh, 20 some odd percent declines in small cap stocks or in various sectors. So we've had a rolling bear and bull market all this time. So I don't worry about the age of the bull market because I challenge anybody that it's not eight years old. I'll concede that if it's six years old, but it's not eight years old. And so it is old, but it's not ridiculously long in the tooth. And John, you said that, that some of your clients, that they're, not, they're not exuberant. And one of the things they're worried about is, is politics. We have a new president, very unpredictable new president. Um, what you know, do you worry about it? Do you, do you think, to, or at least does that, does that influence your stock selection? Do you think the things that have done well and done poorly since, uh, since Trump uh, was elected, you know, maybe we've gotten ahead of ourselves or, you know, that we're misinterpreting things or right. do you, how, do, how do you play that? Well, it's very difficult um, as a long-term oriented investor to make shorter-term investment decisions when you frankly don't know exactly what's going to occur. So whether it's, you know, the new health care legislation, how is that going to shake out? You know, we have a general idea of what's being proposed, but, you know, by the time it gets through uh, committees and, and ultimately might actually get enacted, we don't know exactly what's going to occur. So what we try to do is to sort of uh, think about a reversion to the mean, meaning that the market may have gone overboard in terms of punishing healthcare stocks because of fears about what might happen in terms of price controls or or other sorts of, of issues associated with them. And so there creates opportunity within that sector. So we're going to be more interested in the things that have gotten beaten up. Same thing, say, with uh, retailers, which are, have been hit hard on concerns about the border tax or even refining stocks. Um, so we tend to gravitate toward those at the margin. Remember, we're long-term oriented and we don't take big bets on any particular company and we're not really over or underweighting dramatically uh, sectors. Um, but at the margin, we want to be adding to our, our um, health care exposure, adding to our consumer discretionary exposure. And conversely, you know, to your point, well, we've had this big boost in financials. Um, obviously, con- uh, thinking of lower regulation, but also the interest rate uh, uh, climate uh, increasing being favorable for them. And we've had a big increase in infrastructure-related stocks. And so those companies are things that are getting close to our target prices and things that we might consider lightening up on. So mm-hmm. that's the kind of the way we look at it, is trying to, to, to pay attention to the news, but not overreact to short-term events and take advantage of the short-term opportunities. I think that's a great place to pause. We'll be right back after this. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcast. 
become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices. Um, I wanted to sort of get back to what you were saying before the break, John. Just how, for an investor, does the uncertainty, that the policy uncertainty, how does that impact your decision making? How much do you pay attention to that um, in, in you know deciding how you're going to, where you're going to put your money? Right. Well, uncertainty, not to go off on a tangent, but uncertainty is a, is the friend of long-term oriented yeah. investors because it's what creates the opportunity. So again, as I was saying, you know, trying to the, take advantage of the overreactions we get, either for concerns about policy that might, you know, damage potential con- uh, company or industry, or vice versa, things that might be perceived to be very supportive of that. And so trying to always pay attention to your valuations. You know, we set target prices for our companies, and those target prices will ebb and flow up and down a couple bucks here and there based on the news. And so, but the nice thing is that the stock market, you know, might have a 10 or 15% move in a particular sector based on the same news that we think might be only worthy of a one or two you know, percentage point move in our target prices. So then taking advantage of that by maybe lightening up on those and then vice versa, the things that have gotten beaten up. But it's very hard for investors because we're bombarded now 24-7, you know, with with news and, and uh, you know, tweets and, and all sorts of things that you feel like you need to do something. Yeah. You know, and, and so often, you know, it, it's, it's don't, you know, don't do something, just stand there is the right you know, course of action, but it's so easy now. And this is one of the, you know, it's great that many of the discount brokers have just lowered their commissions down again. You know, Schwab and Fidelity are at four ninety five a trade, and uh, you know you can trade ETFs for next to nothing. But that ability to transact with no friction, you know, no uh, costs, uh, makes a lot of investors more interested in trading. And generally speaking, the more you trade, the worse you do. Right. And so in the good old days, you know, when you had to pay, you know, thirty nine ninety five a trade and you didn't have ETFs and the ability to literally punch a button and sell SPY, a million dollars worth of SPY in your portfolio for nothing, where you actually had to transact 60 or 70 times and you're thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to pay the, you know, thousand dollars it's going to cost me to trade. That caused you to stay the course in many instances and in all likelihood do better than if you, you know, somehow took advantage of this, you know, cheap uh, transacting environment. So it's great for, for, you know, to lower costs, but if it encourages more action in the portfolio, it can be a detriment for investors' long-term wealth. Talk, talk a little, because it's a fascinating point, right? That's sort of the Jack Bogle even critique of ETFs <coughs> where, you know, the ease of pulling up your phone and, and, like, trading makes everybody sort of an armchair macro, you know, strategist, but talk about how tough value investing is, right? I mean, you go through long periods of underperformance, necess- you know, potentially, right? I mean, it's not it's not an easy thing. I think in that Holbert piece that was in Barron's, he said he had nerves of steel, right? I mean, like, just talk about value in- investing and what sort of that means and what people need to understand about that. Right. It's, it's, it's you know, there isn't a magic formula that always works. Right. There's there's great metrics that you can focus on and we are very numbers heavy. And if you look at historical data, you'll see that companies trading for low P.E. ratios, low price to book value, low price to sales. These companies tend to outperform the more expensive stuff. But that's over the long term. 
So you're absolutely right. You'll go through periods where value is not in vogue. And a lot of the reason for that is that the news flow, um, you know, the financial stocks were were, you know, suffering from a low interest rate environment and heavy regulation and therefore there was no real interest in investing in banks and insurance companies and so forth. And then all of a sudden, well, now the Fed's going to raise rates and and uh, we may have some relief on, on regulation going forward and everybody piles into that. So you kind of have to be like the... Uh, and I say I'm, you know, wasn't in a fraternity in school. I did my own thing. But you kind of have to be on your own island as a value investor. But the nice thing is that over time, all of a sudden you're in the right place at the right time, and the the herd, if you will, will gravitate toward your stocks. Uh, Spencer mentioned Apple. You know, when we bought Apple, you know, people thought we were crazy. Um, because, you know, no, who would want to own this uh, dying PC maker uh, that, you know, had 2% of the PC market and, and not really any future because, you know, we had the Microsoft, Intel, Wintel was was the only thing that the businesses were buying and, and Apple was always just going to be a niche player. And then all of a sudden you come out with the iPod. And even before the iPod in 1998, they had the uh, iMac, which had the um, different colored monitor, which was, you know, some revolutionary thing at the time. And and now you had something cool on your desk that was, you know, orange or pink or green. Um, So Apple was always a very innovative company. But now the masses beat a path to Apple because all of a sudden it becomes the hot stock. So those kinds of things give you the faith. uh, And faith is a key word when you're a value investor that eventually – the value will be recognized in the company, either by a shift in investor sentiment, right, or by the fact that temporary conditions that might be um, influencing the market and or the stock price to be depressed are going to be reversed. You know, we're big kind of regression to the mean investors. And when you invest in value, you know, you have stocks that are often priced for imperfection, versus stocks that are priced for perfection. So as we've seen in recent years, you know, Company X comes out with numbers that look to be fantastic, but they didn't beat, you know, excessive expectations. And vice versa, you may have a stock that disappoints, but boy, we thought it would actually be really much worse, or the outlook is a little better and you can have a big rally. So value investing is you have to keep the faith through thick and thin. And we do that by focusing on the long-term nature of those metrics that we invest in, and then also having the years of experience of seeing the, uh, you know, the Apples or the cruise line operators, you know, Royal Caribbean and Carnival were great investments, you know, right after the cruise ship ran aground in Italy. Um, so those are the kinds of things that you can take advantage of. And John, an interesting stat that I've seen presented a couple of ways is if you look at the the best performing funds over a long period of time, they're value funds like yours. Value is kind of proven itself. But if you look at the dollar weighted returns uh, of value mutual funds, they're uh, they're pretty poor. So the gap is a, a lot larger between the money that people actually make um, and the money that the fund says in its prospectus it, it made because they people aren't as patient. Your clients, I guess, aren't as patient uh, and disciplined, and they don't have nerves of steel like you. I mean, is that frustrating? First of all, is that true with with your fund? And, you know, are the dollar-weighted returns lower than the the stated returns? And how how do you deal with that? I mean, you have individuals who you you talk to, right? Sure. Well, we publish – the nice thing about what we do is we publish the Prudent Speculator newsletter, and every week I'm doing a lengthy market commentary that touches on the same 
points week after week after week, which is you can't time the market. You know, we're investing for the long term. Um, you know, whatever, if it's negative news, this too shall pass. If it's, you know, positive news, you know, let's be making sure that we're prepared for the next downturn. So the key, in my opinion, is to keep people on the path to achieving long-term investment success. And that's really the huge value add, no pun intended, that we provide you know, in our service is, is we're better than average stock pickers. And some, of course, would say we're very good stock pickers given our long-term track record, but we're superior stock holders. And so you know, even though I'm saying the same thing week after week after week, I'm trying to make it new and interesting with new examples. And, and thankfully, the media gives me lots of examples to challenge you know, whether it's the bull market anniversary, which I'll write about this week. You mm-hmm. know, the bull market is not eight years old. It's less than that. Um, but I will write about that, and I will show my, my graphs and my charts and the statistics. And the great thing about what, what we have is market history, right? No matter how you slice and dice things just about, if you invest in value-oriented stocks and you're patient, you're going to do well in the fullness of time. You know, whether the New England Patriots win the Super Bowl or whether, you know, hemlines are rising or falling or whether the economy is rising or falling or whatever, um, staying the course has been the, the key to long-term success. And so in terms of our mutual fund, our, our shareholders sort of get that message. And so we haven't had a big deviation between, uh, you know, investor returns and actual fund returns. But in terms of our managed accounts, you know, there is no surprises because they've, if they've read my stuff week after week, they know what we're thinking and why. And, you know, Warren Buffett will say about value investing, either you get it or you don't. And uh, knock on wood, you know, the majority of our clients get it and understand it and know that you're going to go through some lean periods. But then all of a sudden you're going to have a 2013 or a 2003 or a, you know, after the tech bubble burst, you know, in 2000 and 2001, S&P 500 was down double digit percentages. We were up double digit percentages because value had been shunned heading into the, the you know, year 2000. And all of a sudden everybody rotated you know, out of growth and uh, dot-coms and into value. So it had its day in the sun. So the key is to be like the farmer. You plant the seeds, you tend the crops, and you harvest in the fall. And as if you've been to Iowa, you know that during planting season, all you got is a crop of dirt right after you plant, and there's nothing there to show for it. And so you have to have faith that the sun will shine, the rains will come, and that nature will take its course. And, uh, you know, as I say, we have nerves of steel, but it's based on, you know, eight decades of market history and 40 years of our own experience. We are here with John Buckingham. He's the chief investment officer of Al Frank Asset Manager and publisher of The Prudent Speculator. Thanks, John, for joining us. I'd also like to make a point because I think this is crucial. Uh, their newsletter is the top performing of more than 200 news uh, letters tracked by the Hulbert Financial Digest. So that's pretty impressive. Join us next time. Thanks a lot. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.